Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Um, also, I got to like talk rhetoric to a bunch of like preeminent Shakespeare scholars in the wake up workshop that I did during the Blackfriars conference at eight o'clock in the fucking morning on like the third day of the conference. It was kind of great. I got to talk about I'm just I'm bird walking about myself for a second to talk about how I like blew their mind holes with the rhetoric. Um, but I got to use I got to use the Ophidius speech. Coriolanus, which is like my favorite fucking thing in the whole world. Um, now I'm bird walking. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're never gonna actually record this. It's episode. okay. Uh, I don't think I told you. I am getting a line from Coriolanus tattooed on my body. What? I know. What? I know. When are you getting a tattoo? When is this happening? And what's um, the line? Is it kill, 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 kill him? No, sorry. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> is it, oh, Martius, Martius? Is it, okay, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Answer <laughs> answer me in one word. Mm, uh, to do that, I must borrow Gargantua's mouth. So borrow it, bitch. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Whamlet. And this week we are talking about the Tempest 201. Mm, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. And happy Halloween and Dia de Muerto if you celebrate that. Fun fact the first recorded performance of The Tempest was on Hallowmas Night in 1611, a.k.a. All Saints Day, November 1st. Is that true? Yes, it is. I was just reading it in my Norton this morning. Huh. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. I don't so, know why I'm going to the Arden to, like, fact check you. I believe it is in the Norton. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It is in the Norton. I know, right? And we're Ooh. right in that season. This this pot particular episode will air a couple days after both of those holidays, but still... <laughs> I'm um, thrilled that I adjusted the schedule to yeah, get this here. Not that what I did that on purpose. Strange I mean, I piece of trivia. Did very, adjust it on yeah. purpose, but not for that reason. Um, <laughs> yep. How you cool. doing, Jess? <laughs> My brain is not working. It is. It is stopping and starting, and it's okay. It's it's the end of October. Is what it is. <laughs> I was about so. to fill in and be like, it's the end of days. It's the, the end, end of the world as we know it, and mm, I feel yes. fine. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, cool. So, <laughs> moving along, episodes. moving yeah. along, things are yeah. a little different uh, for two hundred one level episodes. Although they yeah. should feel less and less different yes, because we've done a lot of them now. We're doing but it's, it's fine. Like all, all it's in the script. We'll we'll go ahead and keep saying it. <laughs> right. Okay. So at two hundred one episodes, we feel like you know the play, so know it um if however you feel like you would like to refresh your memory on like what the fuck happens in this play and how colonialist it is uh you can jump back into season one of our podcast uh where somewhere in there early early i Pretty think early is yeah uh, tempest 101 it's like it was within seven like seven or yeah it was within our first 10 episodes because we had mm-hmm. decided that tempest is like on the top 10 curricular yeah, titles you know yeah one of the big ones yeah, so it's early days in our in our pod. A lot um, of my friends teach it. Courtney's teaching it right now. Yay! Shout out to Courtney. What up, girl? Yay, Courtney. We like you. You teach like that Tempest. Face. Oh, she taught it good. She taught it so good. Mm. I had mm. no doubt. Everything she does is good. Also, speaking of my friend Courtney, who uh, listeners will remember... Uh, was our guest on Thomas Middleton's The Witch episode. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, Courtney passed her prospectus defense last week, and now she is officially a PhD candidate. ABD, baby! Yay! Woo-woo. Joining the exclusive club. And this is this is where we, we get all the ABD secrets. So uh, if you are ABD out there in the world... You know the secrets. You know them. Yes, the secrets. Confidential to our listeners. Do you want to know an ABD secret? I I do. It's that Courtney 
is the tits. What? Super secret. They only tell you that when you're ABD. Okay. Like the tits. Capital D. Like the. And then capital tits. T for tits. Absolutely. Love you, Courtney. <laughs> it's actually, like, it's a really big deal, though. It like, is. It's, no, it is. That's, it's a, it's a, a, a milestone. It is the last thing to do before, like, yep. the dissertation and getting those letters. So yep. we are so, so proud. She fucking crushed her defense. And um, now she's going to go blow all of our mind holes with her knowledge bombs. Sounds great. I can't wait mm-hmm. to have my mind hole blown yet Yo. again. Yo, her work is so cool. <laughs> it is, though. It is. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, birdwalking <laughs> back to the Wait, text. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I am happy to birdwalk for Courtney. Um, so for the 201 level episodes, we want to go narrow and deep on a couple of topics relating to the play. And today, we're talking about editorial interference mm. and Prospero. <sighs> Prospero. But before that, you know yeah. what we gotta do. Yes. It's rhetorical device of the week time. Yes. Because we stan rhetoric. Yep. Um, so in the 101 episodes, which we did a whole lot of and now we don't do so much of, um, we discuss the definitions of rhetorical devices and we give examples. But when we do a 201 uh, episode, what we like to do is we go back and we find a device that we talked about previously and then we discuss the uses or characterizations of that particular device in performance in this particular play. It's always the Tempest. It's not always the Tempest. It's whatever play we're talking about. So in our 101 episodes, we, we say that identify a particular character's rhetoric helps us understand them gives us it'll give you line reading options um, and but to answer you know what that actually means we have to look at the context in which the device is used and what I've started to find is really helpful for me is just picking a character in that play and figuring out how they talk mm. um, so Smart. yeah so what I um, I'm doing sort of a combo of two devices this week what? Yes. Not allowed. We've never done that before. It is allowed. I'm breaking the fucking rule. It's my show. So uh, this week, because these two devices often overlap and they kind of yeah, go yeah. together, Smart. I figure we need to just talk about them together. Uh, so I'm I'm going to talk about briefly uh, Accumulatio and mm. Auxesis. Um, Girl, you know I like it when you talk rhetoric to me. I know. So anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, back to Caliban. Okay, so Caliban, right? The person who is a it's a really wonderful example. Did we? Sorry, I forget. Did you say what these two devices are? Damn it. Okay, we took like a big old detour, and you know how in like real life when you take a giant detour and you end up like way further along the road once you get back on it than you mean to be. Okay. Anyway. So you got to double back. So here's my extended metaphor for that. Okay. So, which is another kind of rhetoric whose name I can't remember right now. Doubling um, back? No, uh, extended metaphors. Oh. Um, it's Hendiatus? No, I don't want to go there. I don't remember. Um, anyway, so accumulatio and auxesis. To refresh your memory, accumulatio is a kind of addition type of rhetoric. Um, it's usually a, a string of adjectives or maybe other parts of speech, sometimes nouns. I'm going to say, for my purposes today, there's definitely a string of nouns that I'm going to call accumulatio. Um, They're not strictly necessary for understanding whatever the statement is, but they are put in for added descriptive emphasis. Um, So accumulatio, as in if you put an end on it, uh, an N on it, it's accumulation. Think of that's how I remember it. Um, It's just just a slew of extra things. and then the auxesis is a kind of direction uh, rhetoric, so d- directing the momentum of the words. Um, and auxesis is a build. Auxesis is a list that generally builds to a climax. Usually, the most important thing at the is at the end of that list. Um, That's what she said for <laughs> for climactic purposes. So when you put accumulatio and auxesis together, you can you can kind of get where I'm going with this. It's like a, a string of you know uh, added stuff that builds to the most important thing at the very end. Um, so the, the big, a big perpetrator of that uh, type of language in this play is Caliban. And there are three really good examples of it. First of all, they're really only Caliban's three scenes. So mm-hmm. uh, act one, scene two, line, uh, I'm looking at my Norton second edition today. Although, actually, I have my New Oxford directly underneath it. Like, you know you're a hardcore Shakespeare scholar when you have two complete works cracked open, stacked on top of each other. 
Book stacking is um, my favorite it's, thing. It's the, it's, you know, it's definitely a telltale sign. Uh, anyway, so around line 335-ish for those um, following along at home. Do uh, you need me to? To read with no. you? Are we reading? No, oh, okay. no right. it's just Caliban stuff. So okay. um, so listen to how he 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 both um, makes a list. Acum- yeah. Like any kind of addition rhetoric tends to slow the speaker down, right? Um, so so and, and then you have to ask yourself, well, why does this character want to pump the brakes and like savor this moment for whatever reason, right? Uh, so Caliban says, when thou camest first... Thou strokest me and made much of me, wouldst give me water with berries in't, and teach me how to name the bigger light and how the less. So there's that first sort of list uh, of things. Uh, and how the less that burn by day and night. And then I loved thee and showed thee all the qualities of the isle, the fresh springs, brine pits, barren place, and fertile. Cursed be I that did so. All the charms of Sycorax, toads, beetles, bats, light on you. So list, list, list. You know, and again, accumulatio mostly is a, a list of adjectives, but he's he's throwing nouns in for, you know, toads, beetles, bats. Okay. Uh, so next example, real quick, act two, scene two. Basically, when Caliban, it's the scene that goes on when Caliban meets Trinculo and there's thunder and the fish monster humorousness. Hmm. Um, But before that, Caliban's all by himself on stage. Uh, And he says, all the infections that the sun sucks up from bogs, fens, flats on Prosper Fall and make him by inch meal a disease. So again, he's listing bogs, fens, flats. Um, it's not good enough for Caliban that he just gets cursed on a bog or just on a fen or just on a flat. It's got to be all three because um, he's mad as well. He should be. So there's that one. And then last example in three, two, he's this is so Caliban is leading Stefano and Trinculo into toward where Prospero's library is and whatever he says having first seized his books, or with a log batter his skull, or paunch him with a stake, or cut him with we- his weasand with thy knife. Right? So, list, 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 oxesis. So, there's that. Um, your boy Caliban does it. It's up to the actor, as I often say, to figure out why they're doing that. Um, yep. So, like, people tend to pile on uh, using addition when they're when they're angry. So maybe that's what it is. Uh, they tend to add on when they want to savor a moment or slow down and sort of live in it longer. So that could be part of it. Um, the oxesis, the build, right, is really just directing the momentum of the speech. So that's more about like where to put your emphasis as you're speaking those lines. Um, but but there that is uh, for, you know, the next person out there who hears this and is playing Caliban. It's there for you. So go find it. You're welcome. Cool. Yep. Great. Moving on to our discussion topics today. Let's talk yeah. about editorial interference. Jess. Let's fucking do it. So I find that more and more on on these 201 episodes i don't have arguments to make mm-hmm. i mostly want to like point something out and be like cool. look at this isn't this cool um yeah. which is like totally the opposite of what i have to do in my academic work right now so like that i think is why i'm like hey look at this cool thing isn't that cool i don't have anything else to say yeah. about it except it's cool so sounds refreshing yeah right like i just i just want to be like look it's cool and then like we can mm-hmm. fucking talk about it so i need you to okay. open your text um yep it's Done. one two around line 350 this is the first scene with prospero and miranda and ariel and caliban you know we sort of meet all the inhabitants of the isle um this is yes. after prospero has done his whole like here's how we came to be on the island and put Miranda into her enchanted speech and then sleep, enchanted sleep, not enchanted speech. Um, (laughs) Well, he does make her go into an enchanted sleep too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, We've met Ariel. Miranda is awake again. They're like, let's go see Caliban. It's that part of the scene. Right. The scene is so fucking long. Yes. So uh, let's just read it. And uh-huh. then let's talk about it. Will you read Prospero and Caliban? Sure. And do like voices. You're better at voices than I am. Um, I will and try. Up, it's in my text. It's line 345. Thou must line slave. Oh, great. All right. 
Thou most lying slave, whom stripes may move, not kindness, I have used thee, filth as thou art, with human care, and lodged thee in mine own cell till thou didst seek to violate the honor of my child. Oh, ho, ho, would it had been done, thou didst prevent me, I had peopled else this isle with Caliban's. Abhorred slave, which any print of goodness wilt not take, being capable of all ill, I pitied thee, took pains to make thee speak, taught thee each hour one thing or other. When thou didst not, savage, know thine own meaning, but wouldst gabble like a thing most brutish, I endowed thy purposes with words that made them known. But thy vile race, though thou didst learn, had in, had that int which good natures could not abide to be with. Therefore wast thou deservedly confined into this rock, who hadst deserved more than a prison. So... In in my text, which is the Arden, and in your text, which is the Norton two, yeah, and presumably also in the Oxford, which is below your Norton two, uh-huh. um, the abhorred slave speech is assigned to Miranda. Let me check my Oxford since it is right here. Very good. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Most modern editions give this speech to Miranda. Yeah, The folio, which is the only quote-unquote authorial text that we have from the period, gives the speech to Miranda. Mm-hmm. Enter the editor. Oh, no. They, like the Victorians, fucked everything up forever, and everything that's wrong with the world is because of Victorians and editors. Um, and probably Victorian editors. So most... Yeah. Early edited editions of this play give that abhorred speech, abhorred slave speech to Prospero. Like, yeah. why? That face. Here's why. Is because, first of all, men. Because the patriarchy and men. Um, because all, all early editors of Shakespeare were men. All yep. of them. Yes. And... The the idea is that that speech, you know, abhorred slave, um, calling you a savage, calling you a thing most brutish, talking about your vile race. Mm-hmm. This this sort of language is out of character for sweet, innocent Miranda. Mm, it's Miranda, unladylike. it's unlady. It's fucking unladylike. Right. Um, so for, I don't know, 200 years most editions gave this to Prospero. Um, performances gave it to Prospero, which I mean, that's pretty much all there is, right? Is like, it started out as Miranda, then it spent a long-ass time being Prospero, now it's back to Miranda in most editions, not all, in fact, but most. And I think it fundamentally alters that scene. Yeah. It might be you know slight it might be subtle but i think it absolutely it alters the scene it alters prospero it alters miranda it alters caliban right it changes everything in this moment that then has sort of reverberations through the rest of the play right because miranda doesn't talk a lot yeah right she is a good daughter a good wife she's one of those seen but not heard heroines um I don't like this play or Miranda, but like, whatever. <laughs> so taking away this speech, which is a good, you know, 10, 15 lines, doesn't give us any depth to her character, right? What we've seen so far is like, oh, daddy, tell me about my past and my childhood and meh. Yeah. And then later in the play, right, we get, oh, it's a man. Right. Daddy. Yeah. And I was just going to say that, like, if you cut out this exchange with Caliban, the the next man she talks to is the man she marries. And like, there's no in between. Yeah. And it's so one dimensional. Right. Yeah. Without this speech, Miranda is a piece of furniture. Wonder bread. (laughs) Wonder bread. Yeah. Like, just the most. She's a sponge. She's nondescript. She's, yeah, just you know, yeah. You don't you don't even notice her. She is in this play to serve her father's purposes, whatever mm-hmm. those are. You know, to punish the people who've wronged him, to 
reunite the families, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But she is she's a pawn uh, at the mercy of other men, men who are older than her, men who are more worldly than she is. Um, but this speech gives her a backbone. This speech gives us insight into, you know, her her inner workings, right? This gives an actress something to do. Yeah. Right? Something Everything to cling else, to. Yeah. Like yeah. all the rest of Miranda's scenes are just she's like a goddamn parrot, right? She yeah. just she sits there, she looks pretty, she speaks when spoken to, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, but this speech is the only thing that that gives her any any motivation, anything interesting to do. Yeah. Right? It's ten lines, but God, what a great ten lines. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on, and it's full of anger and vitriol and motivation. And is it kind of racist? Kind of uh-huh. <laughs> it's, well, yeah, it sure is. It's absolutely yeah. it's racist, it's colonialist. Colonial? Yeah colonialist colonizing what yeah. is that thing it's whatever yeah. that adjectival form of that verb is yeah. i don't know so that's sort of like hey look at this thing isn't that cool and interesting and important for reasons yeah yeah, yeah. yes it that's, is that's what i got um i i have seen it in performance done both ways which i think is super fucking interesting really yeah yeah the um well now I'm immediately mistrusting my memory, but I recall that the production at Shakespeare Theater Company in uh, 2014, fall 2014, winter 2015, that time-ish, mm-hmm. um, which was a spectacular production visually. I mean, it was a visual spectacle. Mm-hmm. Um and substantively, I did not care for it. Uh, that production gave this speech to Prospero, and the Prospero was huh. the Prospero was famous. He was he was a TV actor. Oh, uh, I forget who it was. Not someone that I had ever seen in anything, but like hmm. maybe he was in like Slings and Arrows or Star Trek or something I don't watch. Hmm. <laughs> because you know those two shows are quite similar yes (laughs) so anyway um that production as i recall did this but i can't even reliably recall what year it was so i might be fucking wrong i might be talking out my ass um (laughs) but the asc when they did it in like the same time ish this speech i'm sure went to miranda because they used the ardens as the right their performance text in the arden does it with miranda so right right. um yeah i mean just like fuck me up for that production that takes the speech away from miranda like god what a shitty thing to do to your actress yeah your singular actress in the play (laughs) p.s yeah yeah i mean i don't know i i other than like you know gender norms and like the the words used in that speech not conforming to like victorian ideas of mm-hmm. ladylike speech you mm-hmm. would think though like mm-hmm. pause for a second like mm-hmm. the only person she's had to talk to mm-hmm. mostly has been her dad so wouldn't she have picked up some of his language mm-hmm. you know what i mean like wouldn't miranda have wouldn't miranda be mimicking her dad's words anyway yeah. and also like the lead into the speech is Prosper literally saying, like, hey, you tried to rape my daughter. Yeah, so... thou most lying slave. Like, and then right? she immediately says, abhorred slave. Yep. You know, so. Yep. Fucking Victorians, man. Yeah. What the hell? Like, girls got reasons to be angry. Yeah. And to parrot her father's language. Uh huh. Because of, you know, isolation on an island. Yep. He like... is the only person she's known since she was like three. Yeah. Yeah. Which, like, how much language does a three-year-old have? Not much. Yeah. Yeah. And we all know how spongy kids are about picking up bad language. So. Yep. Yep. You know. Yeah. All right. Well, that's what I have to say. So why don't you tell us about Prospero and how shitty he is? Because, boy, he's (sighs) shitty. I really don't like this play. I me either. I really don't. Um, I I struggle to find things to like it. You know, like I I there are themes in the other romances 
um, that are present in this play, like forgiveness and and that sort of redemption plotline that I'm super into, but not in this play. And I uh, I struggled to find something to talk about because I kept circling back to how much I hate Prospero. Um, cause I, I don't know. So I didn't know what I wanted to focus on. I was like, Oh Jesus, like anything at all. Can I talk about anything at all besides the colonialism and, and how much I hate Prospero? I'm not sure I can. I was thinking for a minute, that's why I went back to my Norton, which I haven't done in a while, but like I was reading the notes to see if I could right, like, right. it would spark something. And they mentioned John D and I'm currently in book three of the all souls trilogy. If other people are reading that, um, and I was like, oh, John D and the alchemy and the, da, 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 you know, these are like real people. And it was, that was a cool point for me. Um, so I was thinking at first about talking about John D, who, uh, if you don't know, was a famous occultist and wizard and astrologer mm. in the Elizabethan period. And Love also how totally sexist it is that when a man studies the occult, he gets to be the astrologer for the fucking Queen of England and her advisor in her privy council. But if a woman is even accused of such a thing, even if it's not true, she's burnt on a fucking stake before she can defend herself. I yeah. was going to go off on that tangent, but we don't have time for that right now. Okay. Hashtag paralypsis. Okay. Um, so that's a fucking double standard, and it pretty much applies to Prospero. And maybe, I don't know, I was working on this like proto theory that maybe Prospero is like Shakespeare's riff on, on John D. Um, Because they're so similar in their book learning and their magics. Maybe. I don't know. Um, But, but okay. But so I keep circling back to you, like, why I hate Prospero. So I'm just going to go off on it. So I have the same problem with Prospero, apart from, like, the slavery and stuff, um, that I have with Lear. Because he's an old man with waning influence on his nearly grown child or children. Um, and in Prospero's Great. case, also his slaves. Um, and he tra- he manipulates literally everything that happens in the play. Um, now at Lear, this is where they diverge, of course, because Lear like loses control or whatever. But Prospero is a puppet master. He is coercing everyone from the beginning of the play into ending up exactly where he wants them, how he wants them. He forces people to do stuff they don't want to do. Caliban and Ariel are his slaves. He makes Ferdinand jump through all kinds of hoops to marry Miranda. He makes Miranda fall asleep when she starts asking too many questions um, and kind of manipulates her into falling in love with Ferdinand because he knows that she doesn't know, literally doesn't know any better. Um, I mean, what if there's someone perfectly great out there besides Ferdinand, Miranda has no clue and he manipulates that. Um, he makes people feel stuff that they don't want to feel and like go through emotional catharsis that maybe they don't want to go through like mm-hmm. Antonio and Sebastian and Alonzo and Ferdinand and Miranda and just like fucking everyone. Basically mm-hmm. he kills Sycorax. He enslaves Caliban and Ariel and God knows what other kind of spirits on the Island. And he exploits the native people's, on that on that island um he uses magic and threats and pretty extreme measures all to lead to the finale which is the one thing he wants which is his institutional seat of power restored to him um so i started thinking wow this sounds a lot like late stage capitalism this sounds like how people describe late stage capitalism and so i'm like what if this is an allegory for late stage patriarchy like, and of course, Shakespeare could not have foreseen this. This is totally like an Aubrey lens, you know, for all we know, like one thing we know for sure about The Tempest is that there's not a direct link to any kind of source text, right? There are some incidents like the 1609 shipwreck, uh, the Jamestown shipwreck or whatever that may have inspired the, the writing of this play. But like mm-hmm. scholars have mm-hmm. not been able to find a direct link to any kind of a source text for this play. So we have to imagine that it came out of Shakespeare's brain all by itself. Um, And, you know, being a dude, an old dude later in his career, maybe this, you know, some people like to argue that this is Shakespeare, like working out his stuff and it's semi-autobiographical or whatever. I don't care. Um, (laughs) I don't care. This is me thinking about late stage patriarchy. So I'm borrowing the term. uh, I'm... And the definition that kind of worked for me was in um, from this article called thebalance.com, uh, late stage capitalism definition, which basically describes late stage capitalism as the hypocrisy and absurdities of capitalism as it digs its own grave, which Good. to me seems applicable to to patriarchy. Right. This seems to me 
this play and this man struggling to maintain his power over everything and how other people behave seems to me like the hypocrisy and the absurdity of a patriarch who's digging his own grave. <laughs> so, ah, you know, it, it's, yeah, so, you know, um, it's patriarchy's last gasp, if you will. And when things get like, you know, how many cliches can I throw out? Darkest before the dawn, it's going to get bad before it gets better, you know, <laughs> like it's going to get really bad. Um things get truly absurd right before a massive cultural shift. Uh, so that's kind of the definition I started working with. Um, so Prospero, an aging man with literally too much power, like occultish power. He does some really hypocritical and absurd shit to accomplish his ends. And then he gives most of it up. Most of it. He takes back his one little seat of power and, but he's like, Oh, I'll drown my book. Um, and I'll give it up. So, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that allegorical take on Prospero is meant to be hopeful. In in other words, like it's gonna get better, guys. Like a new society where people are actually equal and the Equal Rights Amendment exists is is on the horizon. Because I don't know that it is. <laughs> I don't know that it is. It's just a reading that I've put on Prospero because that's how I'm feeling today. So I I don't know I can see yeah it feels like we're still in the thick of men doing really absurd shit to maintain their power, yeah. um and not like we're on the horizon of something better yet, yep. but uh but the connections are connecting for me all the same so that's what I got I hate Prospero I don't enjoy this play nope. I know some people who just love this play it's a lot of people's favorite play love it I know and like not me. Ah, uh, not me either. There's there are like a couple moments of like pretty good one-liner like zingers that make kind of get you in the heart. But that's kind of it. I don't yeah, know. I mean, I think minus the histories which are kind of uniformly trash in my book, <laughs> this play is probably in my least favorite five. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so, never it's never it's really like grabbed me. ANC Troilus all's well this and Lear are in like my bottom non-history <laughs> clump sure that's fair I fucking hate Lear man and that fucking uh, I, next I week's gonna be fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh my god it love. is a double header of yeah. plays we don't love of like yep. old dudes doing shit to themselves yep. and their daughters like, and their daughters <laughs> Why? I know. Uh, okay. I know. Also, anyway. fun fact about <laughs> Lear. My fucking father, my actual human father, quoted goddamn King Lear in his goddamn toast at my goddamn wedding. Oh. Yeah, I believe that. I, I mean, I've never met your dad. I don't know why I believe. It's not because of your dad that I believe that. It's because right. men and old yeah. men in particular really yeah. cling on to Lear. Like they yeah. identify with it super hard. I'm not sure he knew he was quoting Lear. I think he knew he was quoting Shakespeare. Like my dad's not a, he's not a mm -hmm. theater Shakespeare guy. Yeah. <laughs> Which I had forgotten <laughs> and probably not even realized in the moment. But then while looking for all of the stuff uh, this week, I came across a copy of my father's wedding toast and oh went gosh. dad i can't believe i can't <laughs> it's literally there were a hundred people at my wedding and his whole toast is just one inside joke after another that no one in the room got except for me not even my husband Aww. just me oh <laughs> yeah which, like, cute, but also, like, dad. <laughs> it anyway. is kind of cute, but also, read the room, dad. Yeah. <laughs> but, of course, not that's not that his job. Wedding. That's, you know. No. It's not his job to read the room he will at that moment, to be fair. at my second wedding. He will not be invited <laughs> to my second wedding. That's, oh. that's not true. He'll absolutely, if he's still alive, he can come. But that assumes that I get married soon, and he lives a while. <laughs> So, hey, boyos, come on, come and get you a slice of Hamlet. She's on the market, y'all. What Speaking if I turn of, this podcast into just my own personal dating show? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could have hoped for a better reaction. <laughs> uh, That's anyway. 
Um, so Shakespeare gossip, Shakespeare bubble gossip time. Yeah, you have things to say. And I do. I don't, so. Just a few, just a few highlights. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm on the other side of the Blackfriars Conference now. Um, it happened. It was it was pretty great. It was the tenth one, um, so that was kind of a big deal. Some highlights personally: um, David Sterling Brown's keynote was absolute fire, which I knew Obviously. it would be. I I knew it would be. But I'm sitting there like listening to this man who is brilliant about all the things, um, saying some stuff that everybody in that room needed to hear. Like he just laid it out it was great it was Did fucking great hear it though judging by their faces because the lights are on in the blackfriars uh-huh. at all times i think uh-huh. it landed okay well that's i think that's it landed something. yeah okay. it's something it was a little uncomfortable because he started talking about how cleopatra should be a brown person mm-hmm. uh and it i it got visibly uncomfortable on some people's mm-hmm. faces and there was nothing we could do about it so the thing I was most excited about before the conference um, turned out to be, it, it did turn out to be a pretty cool thing. Um, so the staging sessions were kind of like a, um, <laughs> like, like American Idol model. Like there were three judges, um, a cranky one and two nice ones. Um, but yeah, they were, uh, it was scholars like pitching plays that had never been done on the American Shakespeare Center's stage on the, in the Blackfriars before. Um, in our Blackfriars before and why they should be done. Uh, and there were a series of three of them over three days, uh, you know, two two going head to head each time. And so the winners from each of those days were one, Fletcher's Bonduca, which you may know the name uh, Boudica, you know, if anybody's interested in that, you mm-hmm. know, early Roman, like Iron Age warrior queen. That's mm-hmm. what it's about. I had no idea that Fletcher had even written a play about her, mm-hmm. and now I'm fascinated mm-hmm. and I want to read it. Uh, so that one was one of the winners. That, And by win, I mean um, basically the prize in this would be a consideration for addition in a future season, like an actual serious consideration. Um, Kids, the Spanish tragedy, which everyone in the room was absolutely blown away, myself included, that we hadn't done it on our stage yeah, like, yet. Yeah, how, like how has that not happened? How? How have we missed that? So that that one, you know, got passed forward. And then um, our honoree this year was Roz Knutson, and she herself pitched Barnaby Barnes's The Devil's Charter, which mm. Jess kindly reminded me after I texted her being like, oh, my God, The Devil's Charter. Um, yep. She reminded me that we had actually seen it in a stage reading and stuff, and it was great like then, too. like a fully too. realized stage reading. Yeah, I don't remember. Matt played the Pope. I don't remember any of it. I don't I- I mean, maybe you weren't there, but also like how? I do you think not I probably that? was there. It's also I'm sure just you were. I just don't remember stuff like yeah. that. No. Like it's probably been you know deleted to make room for other things. I don't know. Mm. Um. So so those were the three that that quote unquote won, and the pitches for them were totally awesome. Um. And basically it involved, you know, uh, scholars talking about why it would be great in that particular room, in that space, but also staging a couple of the scenes with the actors in the company to show some of the weird stuff and sort of buck basket type scenes that might be fun. So that was fun to watch. It was interesting for me personally. So it was one of my highlights. Um, Alice Daly of Mm -hmm. Villanova University Mm -hmm. gave a a paper called... A book is a unit of time, library deselection, and the work of mourning. Mm. Um, and and it, it brought the whole room, like, to a standstill um, and, and a lot of us to tears. It was so moving. And she was just talking about – it was sort of autobiographical in that – you know, she she was talking about the process of library deselection, where if you're not familiar with library terms, apparently that means um, when books are like retired or put out mm-hmm, to pasture mm-hmm, or even mm-hmm. destroyed if no other yeah. library will take them. Yeah. Um, so so she kind of used that as a metaphor for like putting things away and and grieving and. You know, what happens if, you know, if she's the person who gets to deselect books, can she just deselect the works of abusive, terrible people and Mm -hmm. only and like curate uh, the remaining collection to reflect more diversity and Mm -hmm. and things like that? But also talking about going through this process while while mourning her her mother's passing. And so it was just the whole thing was just 10 minutes of um, of real 
like honesty, hard talk, um, big heart, big thoughts, words. Uh, she got a standing ovation by the end of that. Like Good. it was, it was a beautiful delivery and just made everybody just kind of stop and think and sit in that room together. And it was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on a on a slightly more personal note, a really great highlight was one getting to see many of my friends who are. ECR, as they say in the industry, early career researcher, which thank you, Jess, for helping me learn what that meant. Um, but watching watching my friends like Molly Harper and Leah Wallace and Emily McLeod and Haley Backrack like present, oh, and Mary Finch, you know, present like new emerging scholars present their work. Um, and on the last day, um, Molly Harper presented uh, a paper called What to Do with a Roaring Girl, where she pitched um, teaching non-Shakespeare texts in like a 10th grade, you know, classroom. Um, and, and what was great about it, it not only did Molly make her point and deliver it very well, but a couple of speakers later, Gary Walton from Meredith college, as he got up to start his paper, um, made a point of immediately engaging his paper with hers in discussion, which, and he's a pretty senior scholar and, and that, I don't know that just that act of like inclusion and generosity. He was like, you know what? Your paper was all about this kind of inclusion. And I feel like my paper also speaks to that and is part of that conversation. And like in the middle of that paper delivery at one pretty pointed moment, like he turned around to Molly and like gave her like a solidarity Mm. sign. Like I'm with you, girl. It was, it was kind of great. What was his paper about? His paper was about, uh, it was called Shakespeare for an age. And it was about, um, uh, the, the, emerging interpretations and lenses that we right now put on Shakespeare, Mm. both in like um, the way we cast shows um, with differently abled and different, all different shades and sizes and peoples um, and genders of peoples. And, and Molly's was kind of about that too, about roaring girl being inclusive of uh, LGBTQ students and giving them visibility and stuff. Um, So like the, he just, he just made it very clear right away in the middle of that plenary that their works were talking to one another. And I felt like that was, yeah, it was just a really nice moment of, of scholarly generosity um, and collegiality. And, and that was really great for the final day. Nice little button. So those are some of the personal yeah. highlights for me. It was, it was pretty I, great. Uh, I helped Mary Finch with her paper. Oh yeah. Yeah. Her paper that, about pajamas. Sucker <laughs> several times. Mm-hmm. I think it's real good and I want her to submit it places for publication. So yeah. Um, yeah. Also she is an upcoming guest on the podcast. So she sure next is. Next year we'll have her talking about Musidorus. Yes. which is a bonkers great play so yeah, it's the other bear play <laughs> yeah the one of one of three mm-hmm. winner's tale musidorus and the one that i always forget <laughs> might be mm. locrine it's probably not locrine mm. um, i didn't even know there was a third one i just thought there were two yeah, so there you go three there are three so anyway it happened it was great you know i'm tired yep but it was it was good yeah yeah so i am glad i wasn't there because i remember all too f- well how how the exhaustion <laughs> goes yeah that is a long ass conference good it god is. it is long Ugh. it is long and there were more plenary sessions this time yeah and fewer colloquies you know fewer breakouts so there too was just much. a lot of time in the same room too much for this yeah. girl I'm too yeah. old I'm too old <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it was uh, a lot no. but it was good yeah. to see people again and good. got to see um, yeah, Gosling showed up mm-hmm. and got donned the bear suit, which was like mm-hmm. a bucket list item for her. So I'm really happy for her. That was She's fun. She's the cutest. She's so her. cute. We love her. Love you, yeah. Mia. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I texted suit her too. on yeah. whatever day after her workshop and it was like, how'd it go? Tell me everything. So, um, well, while you were doing that, I was at the folder. Oh, yeah. Folder shit. So. Right on. That's really all I have to say Doing about that. Shit. Um, there was a reception. I ate very little free food and drank no free wine because I oh. was having there were a lot of uh, Twitter mutuals in the room and and I had a lot of people to meet for the first time. So hmm. um, that was what that was. And then I had a terrible flight back on Saturday. Real, real Aww. bad. It was real bumpy. It's fine. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that's that's what's happening with me so yeah. isn't um 
the Strode program doing a conference soon? Isn't that like in the February? Yeah. yeah, actually, let me let me um, let me shout that out. Yeah, uh, because it's it's a cool thing. It's not a that kind of conference. It's a symposium, oh, gotcha. not a conference. So what okay. is happening um, is the the Strode program here at University of Alabama, uh, which, by the way, if you are interested in applying to be a student here, holla at you, girl. Um, and also, if you would like to teach here, we're hiring. We're doing a job search right now. Uh, applications begin being reviewed November 1st, which is like right before this episode will go up. Um, but they will continue to review applications uh, through December. So uh-huh. it is not too late. Submit, submit, submit. Yeah. Apply, apply, apply. Come yeah. work with us. Holla at me if you have questions. Anyway. Um, so it is the 30th anniversary of the program's um, inception, foundation, mm-hmm. birth. Uh, sure. The program was uh, started by Gary Taylor, he of the New Oxford fame back yes. in whatever 30 years ago was, 1989. That sounds right. Um so to celebrate this, we have like a whole year of uh, special events. But in February, we're doing a symposium, uh, which is titled The Future of Teaching Shakespeare. Um, and what it is, is a day and a half of basically panels uh, of all kinds of people talking about teaching Shakespeare in and out of the classroom, whatever, whatever. Um, it's going to be off the hizzy, as the youths said 20 years ago. (laughs) Um, So just to, just to highlight some of what's going on. um, Our first keynote is Matthew C. Hansen, who's at Boise state university in Boise, Idaho. Um, His keynote is titled Shakespeare and service learning, which that's all the information I have on that talk, but it sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second keynote is Alexa Alice Juban, who is at George Washington University and is the tits. Oh my God, this girl's amazing. Um, her talk is teaching global Shakespeare with digital tools. And you might know uh, the MIT Global Shakespeare's database might ring a bell someone out there also in the world it might ring a bell to our listeners if not Mm -hmm. go go check it out that's her like baby oh damn yeah uh i think (laughs) now that i'm saying that out loud i'm like is that right but i think i'm pretty sure that's right anyway i've been a a fan of alexa for god years now um ever since i first heard her speak in like 2013 question mark as like a baby grad student um her work's incredible it's really, really interesting um, and fantastic. So uh, that's happening. Um, and just to shout out a bunch of people who are coming, not Joey Gamble. He was coming, um, but he like got a job, like a big fancy job or whatever, and like needs to focus on doing his big fancy Ugh, job or whatever. Joey. Joey. Um, so like we miss you, boo. But also like that's the right choice. Um, so Peggy O'Brien, who Yay! is... You know, I love Peggy, <laughs> Peggy, she's the the head of education. Yeah, you know, she's at, a boss bitch. I yeah, love at, her. Yes. So she's yeah. uh, at the Folger. She's coming. She's doing a teaching demo Saturday morning. Um, Sujata Iyengar is uh, at the University of Georgia. She is um, the head editor or maybe one of the head editors of Borrowers and Lenders, which is the journal for Shakespeare and appropriation slash adaptation. She's going to be there. Um, let's see. David Sterling Brown is coming. He's yes. going to he's going to give a talk. He's on a panel that's called Race and Diversity in the Shakespeare Classroom. Ruben Espinoza, who is at the University of Texas at El Paso. He's on that same panel with uh, David Sterling Brown also. And I apologies to Alicia, who told me how to say her name once at SAA. And it was a very loud room and I have not retained it. <laughs> but Alisa Andrzejewski, I think, okay. um, is how we say that. Her, uh, She's also on that panel. Um, her work is really fucking cool. She works on... Shakespeare and early modern drama and pregnancy and the, the pregnant body um, on Ooh. the stage and off the stage. And it's oh, her work is heartbreaking and beautiful and important. Um, and also, she's an incredible colleague, just like in the world. Um, she's super, super 
helpful and useful and friendly and is like always willing to reach out and offer support and eyes on documents and model documents and all kinds of things. So she's coming. It's just like the whole thing is going to be an incredible day and a half of learning and talking Mm -hmm. uh, about how to teach and what to teach and when to teach and where to teach and all kinds of things. Um, So the, we're going to throw the link to that website. Yeah up on our website in the show notes registration is free Ooh, registration is free um wait is registration free registration is free breakfast and lunch are provided both days for free all you have to do is register and then like get yourselves to tuscaloosa um and i would say like if you come you can stay with me but most of you out there i don't actually know personally and my apartment is not that big so um nah but like if you're a human that i know in real life like uh holla at me if you want to come and i'll see if i can put you either like on my floor couch or with someone that i know and we can make it happen for you it's gonna be great so sounds um, great y'all should come because it's free it's free it's free 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 you just have to get to alabama free 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 learning and continuing education that's mm-hmm. rad mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's really great mm-hmm. yeah it's gonna be really really cool so that is uh like the big thing that's coming up um here in alabama that's awesome yeah all right well that's all i got cool so. me too Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Mm, Tune in next week to hear us struggle to get through King Lear 201. (laughs) These fucking old men. I don't understand. I know. Uh, These old men. These old men. Right. Okay. Um, Whamlet out. (laughs) That's a thing we say. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Yeah, get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. Email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jeff Hamlin. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Um, for context for listeners, my mother died when I was very, very young. So she's been dead a, a long ass time. Um, there's a line from the end of Coriolanus that is. Uh, oh, I love that line. <laughs> so get I out know of my what head. You're talking about. Um, well, sorry, I know the play. I know which speech you're talking about. Okay. It's uh, tis a spell you see of much power. You know the way home again. Oh no, um, I didn't know that. that line. No, okay, sorry. Yeah, it's not. It was, I thought it was well, the oh mother mother. I was going. No, I was very no. Very it's obvious. not that one. No, but I like um, yours so, better. So yeah, tis a spell you see of much power. You know the way home again. Um, and I'm gonna have it in the handwriting of my mom, my dad, and my brother. Oh, that's so great. <laughs>